0: The question of the viability of religion and religious practice in a secular age is not a new question. From Nietzsche's madman running around the marketplace proclaiming the death of God to the more practical phenomenon of declining religious participation in certain sectors of Judaism and Christianity, the fundamental issue of what place religion finds for itself in the modern and postmodern world has been often debated and much discussed. Lately, there are new voices that have vehemently asserted not just religion's irrelevance and wrongheadedness, but its malevolence and corruption. Books like Sam Harris' The End of Faith and Letter to a Christian Nation, Daniel Dennett's Breaking the Spell, Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, and of course Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great have found large readerships and enthusiastic followings. So tonight, I would like to explore in conversation with two of the most thoughtful expositors of religion in the world today. The question of how religion functions in an age of autonomy, of fragmented communities, and fraying traditions. To my left, Jonathan Sachs is probably the most articulate spokesperson for Judaism in the world today. He has been Chief Rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth since September 1991 the sixth incumbent since the role was formalized in 1845. Prior to taking up his current post, Rabbi Sachs was the rabbi of the Golders Green and Marble Arch Synagogues. He was educated at Cambridge, where he obtained first-class honors in philosophy. He pursued postgraduate studies at New College, Oxford, and King's College, London, gaining his PhD in 1981, and rabbinic ordination from Jews College and Yeshiva Chaim. His latest books include Future Tense and The Great Partnership. Please welcome Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. One of the most important thinkers that Canada has ever produced, Professor Charles Taylor is that rare philosopher who attempts to put his ideas into practice. His writings have been translated into 20 languages, he has covered a range of subjects that include artificial intelligence, language, social behavior, morality, and multiculturalism. He was a pupil of Isaiah Berlin at Oxford. Professor Taylor taught at McGill from 1961 to 1997, where he is now a professor emeritus. He is also a member of the Order of Canada. Please welcome Professor Charles Taylor. gentlemen, I'm going to begin our conversation tonight by approaching matters from the perspective of religious education, which is where I live. Perhaps the primary fact in much religious education today is that many of the people that we teach of all stripes are so thoroughly immersed in the modern world and have absorbed so many of its presuppositions from the autonomy of choice to the diversity of truth that we don't always reflect sufficiently on what effect this has on their ability to live a sacred life. In 1918, Max Weber writes that the fate of our times is characterized by, above all, the disenchantment of the world. And by that he means the knowledge or belief that there are no mysterious, incalculable forces that come into play, but that one can, in principle, master all things by calculation. I wanted to ask you, and we'll begin with you, Chief Rabbi, if the attitude of disenchantment is all-pervasive, and I want you to... Um, discuss whether you think it is or not. If it is all-pervasive in much of the modern world, then can traditional religion truly survive without becoming either incredibly insular, almost a world apart? And if the price to be paid for religion survival is this hermetically sealed world, is that too big a price to pay?
1: No one has written more, more uh, subtly uh, of the many meanings of the word secularization than Charles himself in sources of the self in a secular age. But it is a measure of our confusion that we forget the most fundamental point of Max Weber and the demythologizing or disenchantment of the world. According to Max Weber, the roots of Western rationality of disenchantment are in Genesis chapter one. The, in the beginning God created, the Genesis one account of creation is a polemic against myth. Myth was a kind of proto-science that tried to explain how things came to be and very often did so in terms of stories about clashes between the gods. Judaism, by this simple litany of, and God said, let there be, and there was, and God saw that it was good, was, according to Max Weber, the opening up of the possibility of science that ancient Israel and, of course, ancient Greece were the first cultures to break with myth. So, in a certain sense, Genesis 1 secularizes or makes possible the secularization of knowledge by predicating the absolute transcendence of God. God isn't part of nature, therefore, we can understand nature, and especially when God creates us in his image, And Rashi explains that means with the capacity to understand and discern, uh, that is a divine given gift, the basis of which is, number one, that God wants us to know, as against the myth of Prometheus, uh, where man had to, the gods had to, man had to steal knowledge from the gods. Uh, Secondly, the entire universe is the result of a single rational creative will and therefore amenable to human understanding, not the play of mysterious and capricious elements. And therefore, Judaism began life, as it were, as an act of secularization of knowledge. The next thing that happens in Judaism, no less important, is its polemic against a sacral kingship. You know, the city-state, the kings of Mesopotamian city-states, and above all the pharaohs of Egypt, were either demigods or the children of gods or The chief interlocutor with the gods. They were religious heads as well. So Judaism secularizes knowledge and it secularizes power. And therefore, we can live with a world in which knowledge is secular and power is secularized because religion belongs in another dimension of life altogether. And if I can give the paradox, here it is. Look at where we are right now in the evolution of human civilization. To explain the world, we don't need. revelation, we have science. To control it, we don't need uh, uh, oracles and and magic, we have technology. To uh, control power, we don't need the prophets, we have elections, even if sometimes, Charles, they go the wrong way. Uh, (laughs) And, oh my goodness, Canada missed its chance of a philosopher king, Charles. (laughs) You know, if we're ill, we don't go to a priest, we go to a doctor. If we're depressed, we don't need the book of Psalms, we can take a pill. And if we are in search of salvation, we can go to the modern cathedrals of the consumer age, namely shopping centers. So, in functional terms, everything religion used to do is now done by something else. And yet, still, people believe. And I don't know if they believe in Canada. In England, they gave up believing a long time ago. And... Even I sometimes have trials of faith in my own soccer team. But um, (laughs) the fact is that religion is alive and well in many parts of the world. According to Robert Putnam in American Grace, according to the editor of The Economist, John Micklethwaite, in his 2009 book, God is Back, there are more people that attend a church weekly in the United States than in the theocratic state of Iran. Did you know that? 40% of Americans go to a house of worship every week. Only 39% of Iranians go. And even more remarkable, in 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 an area where Chairman Mao 50 years ago declared China a religion-free zone, there are now more people in church once a week than there are members of the Communist Party. So... The 21st century is going to be a more religious century than the 20th was and religion is surprisingly still alive and well. Why is that? It is because the four great institutions of the modern age, science, technology, liberal democratic politics and the market economy cannot answer the three fundamental questions that every reflective human being will ask. Number one, who am I? Number two, why am I here? Number three, how then shall I live? Human beings are meaning-seeking animals, and the search for meaning is constitutive of our humanity, and religion is the greatest heritage of our meanings. Therefore, I don't believe that we have to hide ourselves away in sectarian forms of religious uh, organization, either segregated from the world, or sometimes in the case of angry fundamentalists, in an adversarial stance towards the world, I believe we can be in the world with confidence that faith still has a role to play in society and in what it means to be
2: human.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Taylor, I just want to spin it a little bit for you. When, when you're talking about secularization in your book, you're not just talking about how many people go to church and how many don't. You're talking about a kind of internalization <clears throat> of an attitude, I think you talk about the buffered self, where even people who purport to be religious do not seem to have the same mindset in the 2000s as they did 500 years ago in terms of thinking about things like demons, fairies, the soul, the afterlife. I wonder if you could talk about yeah. that a bit for yeah, our audience. I
2: think this is very important, but I want to say first how I'm moved I <laughs> am what Jonathan said earlier about myself. If I have wisdom, it's because I've talked to a lot of people in exchange, and one of them has been very much Jonathan Sachs here that I've learned a great deal from. But to get back to your question, yes, Weber, I'd never accuse him of sloppy thinking, but, I, but he did make a kind of slip here, and it reflects something very ambivalent in Weber. You see, the word disenchantment originally meant the demagification—that's what the word means in German—and right? So he was talking about exactly what Jonathan was talking about. Saul is condemned for consulting the witch of Endor. That is what—and that move has come from the Hebrew Bible through Christianity through Islam. That kind of demagification of the world. Then he slips in this famous phrase from Science as a Vocation to talk about uh, there are mysterious, incalculable forces, and everything is done by calculation. He, he, did he really believe this? I don't think so, because in the lots of other parts of his work, he talks about a universe in which everything is done by calculation as an iron cage. So he's very, very ambivalent about this. But obviously these two are very different things. You get rid of magic. Does that mean that you no longer believe in the power of prayer and getting close to God and giving you a power to do things you couldn't do otherwise? Doesn't follow at all. But when people run these two together, it sounds as though it ought to fall. What we're really living in is an age, in in the West, not everywhere, but is an age in which, roughly speaking, magic is a much lesser place. And people are even inured to it, maybe insensitive to some things that are going on there. But in this world, the great issues arise, as Jonathan says. The great issues arise again, and the various messages that come from the religious communities can answer them, can speak to them.
0: I think that the the three questions you pose are sort of existential questions, but the question is, if you take away the the fundamental belief in magic, let's say, so let's play devil's advocate for a second. My secular students will say things like, mainstream propositions of religion are magic. We're not talking about demons and fairies. just the idea of getting up and, and praying to an invisible being is irrational, it's magical, I'll have nothing to do with it. The idea that God cares about me, rewards and punishes me, that's magical, I'll have nothing to do with it. So, in a way, what I'm asking is, how can you split off, how can a person have a normative religious life if the culture's consciousness is that we've gotten rid of these elements that were the very core of what belief meant?
2: Well, that's because they're confusing magic with something different. I mean, say we don't believe in magic, is not that we don't believe in God, it's on the contrary, we don't believe that there's some kind of automatic way by doing a certain ritual, you know, if I want to get rid of you, I make a, a little uh, image and put a, put a pin in it. When we relate to God, that's not, well, we sometimes ask God, help me to pass the exams," so. And that kind of prayer, I think, is a very important part of, of spiritual life. But the real point is getting close to God and we become finer, better, fuller people in doing this. But I mean, if that's magic, then any kind of moral growth <laughs> is, is magic. And of course, if you use the word that sloppily, then, then all distinctions go. But if you, you know, if you see very clearly what the narrow meaning of uh, uh, disenchantment, then clearly that doesn't touch a whole lot of religions in the world that are not basically, is the message of the Buddha based on magic? Is, you know clearly not. I mean, Um,
1: Charles is absolutely right, and the uh, you know, and that's I think why we both engage in philosophy against as our uh, immune system against what Wittgenstein called the bewitchment of intelligence by means of language. Um, The truth is that the Torah, in uh, you know, in Parashat Shoftim, in the middle of Deuteronomy, absolutely forbids magic of all kinds. Uh, consulting the dead, soothsaying, and all this kind of thing, and uh, absolutely opposed to it. Secondly, um, the Hebrew word for to pray, the actually means to judge yourself. And actually, prayer has more to do with um, openness to otherness than some magical way of bringing about a certain result. And, uh, you know, as, as the old uh, joke puts it, you know, uh, 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 Goldberg, who's been faithfully to synagogue every day for 50 years, suddenly doesn't turn up for several weeks and the rabbi goes to see him and he says, Goldberg, what's the matter? You always came to synagogue, you always prayed. He said, for 50 years I prayed. And once, once in my life I asked God one thing, I said, God, Let me win the lottery, I need 50 million pounds. And he didn't answer my prayer, so I'm not gonna pray anymore. And the rabbi said, Goldberg, God did answer your prayer. It's just that the answer was no. (laughs) 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 I believe we are transformed by prayer in a way that uh, Iris Murdoch said so beautifully, I mentioned this to Charles earlier in NYU a couple of days ago, Iris Murdoch has this wonderful passage in her book, The Sovereignty of Good, where she's talking about someone, you know, you're, you're in a state, you're feeling very low, very sorry for yourself, and you look out of the window, and suddenly your attention is caught by a kestrel. And you're absolutely entranced by the beauty and power of this bird. And all of a sudden you forget yourself completely. Me, it becomes nothing, and it's all kestrel. And uh, Iris Murdoch called this... Unselfing. And that was part of her theory of sort of Platonic theory of good as a way of, you know, unselfing and seeing what's really there. And there's no doubt that I responded to that, resonated to that as a Jew, because actually I think that is what prayer is. It is a sustained act of unselfing, and our, our daily prayers begin with this long list of blessings to God for giving us back our life today. for you know, for the air we breathe, for for the ground we tread on, and so on, all of which is opening our eyes to wonder. And I think that's the power of prayer. And it's got nothing to do with magic.
2: But there was, in the, in the pews or in the general life of the synagogue, lots of people who were doing lots of things on the side, even though they weren't entirely <laughs> considered kosher, which we can think of in terms of the world of, of magic. That was certainly the case of medieval Christianity. I mean, there was all this fear of the spirits of the woods and beating the bounds of the parish and that was an important part of parish life. <clears throat> so we're in a new epoch in which, if you like, religion which was rather closely linked with magic in many cases is being detached from it. But what this is, is not a totally new situation, it's, got, it's liberating a possibility that was formerly, perhaps more a minority than a majority choice and making it the center of our religious lives. I think that is the if you look, spectacular change, if you look over the 500 years yeah. that's come.
1: There is a legal principle in Judaism, ene we do not rely on miracles. We're making calculations, those may, must be done on a rational base. But the locus, locus classicus here is Isaiah chapter one, so we're going back to seventh, eighth century before the Christian era, that powerful vision of chapter 1 in which God says, you know, if you fail to execute social justice and care for the widow and the orphan and you, you know, you, you take bribes as a politician, all the rest of it, God says, who asked you to come trampling on my courts? The more you pray, the less I will listen. In other words, Isaiah was saying, don't believe you can see prayer as some magical way of achieving a result, Uh, a successful society is one built on perfectly rational ethical principles. And God is not your shortcut that allows you to bypass the ethical and hence also in that broad sense the rational.
0: Related to this, I wanted to uh, bring a quote from Peter Berger. when He writes in A Far Glory, which is a book he published about 20 years ago, as a very I remember when I first read it, it really struck me, uh, even though he was talking about the Protestant experience. He says that he believes there's a kind of surrender, that's the word he uses, that takes place on the part of many um, contemporary Christian theologians, um, and it could apply to Judaism as well. And what he talks about is when certain things are substituted for traditional religion. Uh, The substitutes, he says, are things like the alleged ethics of Jesus, or some sort of existential experience, or mental health with a spiritual component, or Christianity as a political agenda. And all of these he sees as substitutions, and hence he sees them as a kind of suicide. In other words, when religion is used to do the things that other domains can do, that people can discover that they can do all of these things without religion. They can be ethical without Jesus and they can be existentially authentic and healthy without religion, etc. So he seems to be arguing that the people who communicate religion today, perhaps except in the most orthodox circles, feel that the message of traditional religion, that's why I was interested, Chief Rabbi, when you were talking about um, opening oneself, that there seems to be a replacement of the old words, God sacrifice, obligation, sin, reward, punishment. And in fact, in many places in the Jewish world, and I assume it's this way in the Christian world as well, there's a new kind of language, religion as self-growth or meditative practice or what you speak about in your book, authenticity. So I'm wondering if you think that the way we talk about religion today reflects, you said it was liberating, but I'm wondering if it's also a certain defensiveness. Um, as though religion is a bit embarrassed about the old words. And so to engage people in the modern world, we try and open up religion's potential in a spiritual sense, which is a good thing. But I'm wondering if it's also an avoidance of the old stuff.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, what you have here in these various things that you mentioned, like self-growth and so on, is an abandonment of what... In both Judaism and Christianity, you could mention Buddhism, you could mention many other religions is the possibility of a much profounder change in human beings I mean let's speak in terms of our you know, of our two religions here, though we'd have to phrase it differently if we we're speaking of others, but that in, in contact with God, one can have a much profounder transformation, which can't be captured by things like self growth because one of the things that's involved is unselfing is going beyond the self right. And <clears throat> so it's possible to react to the modern world by saying, "Well, those kinds of more far-reaching transformations forget them. We can have a perfectly happy life down here, with these much lesser modes, which we can calculate in different right. ways. Of you know, this kind of particular kind of meditation will make you happier, and so on. Right? And that's certainly a very important trend in the modern world. And sometimes religious communities can, uh, in a little certain way, cave into that trend." it can't really suffice in the end, because for some people it might, but for many, many people, the sense that there's something more brings them back again to the Bible. To, you know. Is it a shrinking?
0: Are we are we shrinking religion a little bit?
1: It's a sound, an absolute sound. I mean, religion is more than canonizing the status quo. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm um, really, in fact, it's a kind of idolatry. Idolatry means making God in our image instead of allowing him to remake us in his. And it always struck me as a pretty ridiculous strategy. You know you know those early Woody Allen films, you know, neurotic Jewish Brooklyn kid meets <laughs> suave, sophisticated white Anglo Saxon Protestant girlfriend. I can't remember whether this was the dying Keaton phase or the other phase, whatever it was, and they're kind of talking and you know, he's saying to her, what was the biggest sin when you were a child, you know, and she says something like whatever it is, uh, speaking while you're eating or something and she says to him, and what was the biggest sin when you were a child, and he says, buying retail. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, Jews cut out the middle man. So... (laughs) Um, if the synagogue delivers for me something that the secular society delivers cleaner and better, I'm going to cut out the metal man and go straight to the secular society. So don't try and do that with Jews. I remember uh, for the last 10 years or 15 years, I've launched something. It's a mainly Christian thing, but it's a lot of charity, some secular, called National Marriage Week. And the first time we did this in, uh, in Britain, you know, marriage is a pretty bad state. 46% Um, 46% of children in Britain now are born outside of marriage. So marriage is really in disarray. And so when I opened this uh, National Marriage Week for the first time, a journalist came up to me and said, Isn't that terribly politically incorrect, Chief <laughs> Reverend? I said, Of course it is! If it weren't what would be the point of our saying it? You know, religion is there as a counter voice. It is a Challenge to the norms of society, and it's a way of saying, Look up, search for a more expansive horizon. Now, we are living in the big I generation of all time. Our new revelation was brought down the mountain by the late Steve Jobs, holding in his hand the two tablets. <laughs> <clears throat> I've had one and I've had two. <laughs> And so we have the iPad, the iPhone, the iPod, the iTunes, everything's i, i, i. And it is not surprising that we are more affluent than previous generations and more prone to depressive and stress related syndromes. And religion is about moving beyond the i. I call religion the redemption of solitude. And that is a direct challenge to the individualism of contemporary culture.
0: Um, I wanted to uh, return to something I mentioned off the top, which is the sort of attacks or challenges to religion that we encounter today. Um, What was called the School of the New Atheists. They attack religion with a great deal of flourish. Um, They see it as the province of irrationality, even fanaticism, and they're very popular. And for believers, it's somewhat frustrating as some of their writing seems to somewhat stereotype religious practice. I'm wondering why you think, both of you can weigh in on this, why you think that this kind of writing has become so popular now, to deride religion as negative, simple-minded, destructive? Um, Is it because they've only focused on certain aspects of religion, or do they have a case?
1: Um, Other than Yiddish, I think Oxford comes up with the best insults. (laughs) And therefore, if I may use an Oxford way of describing the new atheists, I would say, on the surface, they're profound. (laughs) But deep down, they're superficial. There is nothing in the writings of the new atheists that was not said better uh, by Hume, by Kant, and with infinitely more eloquence by Bertrand Russell. So my sense of déjà vu is absolutely overwhelming. Uh, Why it's happened now, I think, was best explained by the late Leo Strauss, whom I never knew, in a little book he wrote called Philosophy and Law, who pointed out that uh, when the... uh, You know, the philosophe announced the death of religion and religion didn't die and they produced every conceivable reason why it wasn't true and people were simply unmoved by this. They resorted to the last weapon of desperation, which is ridicule, which is in effect what many of these uh, writers do. Number one like this stuff about magic, they fail to observe the elementary rule of anthropology and sociology, which is to distinguish folk religion from normative religion. I mean, all all religions have a folk penumbra, you know, which include practices which are frowned on by the mainstream, but nonetheless happen. Number two, they lump together polemics against myth and the Bible with myth as well. I mean, Richard Dawkins, in his new book, uh, the Magic of Creation, which in, in many other respects is a super book. I mean, it's a, a deeply, it's a book filled with awe. But, you know, he takes uh, Genesis uh, 8, uh, God's Covenant with Noah symbolized by the rainbow as a kind of quasi-scientific explanation of why they're rainbows. <laughs> uh, and, and that's just potty. I mean, that's ridiculous. And uh, for that, you go to Oxford, but then, you know, it it, it amazes me. So I think they're very angry that having been declared uh, brain dead in the 18th century, here is the corpse still walking and talking and breathing and smiling, um, and they feel they have to laugh it out of existence. Uh, But on the other hand, um, there is a dimension there In their case, which is real and which I acknowledge in my book, The Great Partnership, which is we are seeing the return of some very, very dangerous forms of religiosity. Uh, You know, a, a a religionization of politics, you know, and in certain radical religious circles. And religion and politics do not mix. Um when you religionize a conflict, you render it incapable of solution, because what in politics is a high virtue in religion is the greatest vice, namely compromise. So in order to reach a political solution, you have to be able to compromise, and that means you have to make a principled separation of religion from power. And uh, some of the religion that has emerged in the 21st century is very dangerous, very scary, And on this, I would stand side by side with the new atheists in terms of my own faith. um, Judaism and Christianity both went through bitter internal struggles before they finally learned to relinquish power. In the first century, the Jewish forces inside Jerusalem, as Josephus makes terrifyingly clear, were more bent on killing one another than on fighting the enemy outside. And Judaism, within the next two centuries, reached a stage where a 3rd century sage couldn't even understand that when King David in the Book of Psalms refers to a sword, he means a sword. You know, gird your sword upon your loins. That obviously means to a 3rd century sage, make sure you have a lot of learning to defend yourself with. And somebody comes along and says, when the line says a sword, it means a sword. And he says, oh really? I never knew that. I never knew that before. So um, Judaism went through that bitter internal struggle. Christianity went through it in the 16th and 17th centuries when Europe, the face of Europe was scarred uh, by religious wars in the wake of the reformation, leading to the secularization of power in the 17th century. So um, the new atheists, if they are referring to a dangerous development in the world, then I think they're right and I have to stand Mm -hmm. with them on that.
2: Mm -hmm. No, I entirely agree with that. I'd just like to add two little side um, comments. One is, why are they so angry? Well, I think Mm -hmm. it's rather like Victorian bishops faced with Darwinism, And strangely enough, ironically enough. Why? Well, you see in the 19th century, among many Christian churches, the idea that Christianity is in the strongest civilization in the world. It informs it. It's going higher and higher. It will produce more and more good. Everybody will become... It's a triumphalist picture of history. And then along comes this torpedo. And the same situation here. For 50 years after the Second World War, a lot of secular intellectuals thought religion's disappearing. It's all getting better. It's all going away, and suddenly comes back, and they've got kind of anger at having your whole expectation of history sidelined. The second thing I like to say is maybe what makes everybody read those books isn't the same as what makes the authors write those books. There is such a thing as a succès de scandale. I mean. People like to see what has previously been seen as highly respectable figures and institutions taken down a peg. There's a very good Canadian author you might not know very well, Nancy Houston, because she writes in French. She's gone to France and she writes in French. She wrote this brilliant book, and I've forgotten the title of it, about postmodern philosophy and how. There's a deep gloom in in many of these philosophies. There's no truth, there's no justice, there's no future for human beings. And people come and see plays like that and they lap them up. But in their lives, they aren't operating on the principle that there's no truth. But there's something fascinating about this to see this going on, this kind of drama going on. I think that will account for a large part of the readership because these, these books sell very well it doesn't mean at all that all the buyers and readers are actually buying the argument.
0: There's a fascinating comment I ran across to turn atheism another way by one of the central Jewish thinkers of the 20th century. He's a man named Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook. And Rabbi Cook was the first chief rabbi of Mandate Palestine. He was a fascinating figure. He was a mystic. He was a remarkable figure. And he wrote an essay called The Pangs of Cleansing. And in the essay he writes that God's being, as conceived by the multitude and even by individuals who would be their leaders, is that of a ruthless power from whom there's no escape and to whom we must necessarily be subservient. The tendency to see the divine essence as embodied in words and in letters alone is a source of embarrassment to humanity. And atheism arises as a pained outcry to liberate man from this narrow and alien pit to raise him from the darkness of focusing on letters and words alone, to place his primary focus on the realm of morals. So it seems like for Rabbi Cook, he sees atheism as a way of keeping religion honest and critiquing it when it descends into this kind of numbing dogma and this coercive fundamentalism. That, in turn, would suggest that we're better off not to draw these sharp dichotomies between what we call religious and what we call secular, I wonder if you could both reflect on the relationship between so-called religious communities and so-called secular ones. Yeah. I think there are lots of
1: different kinds of atheists, but I would, uh, in particular, distinguish two. Uh, one I, um, one uh, was nicely defined for me by the late Sir Isaiah Berlin, um, with whom I became quite close towards the end of his life. And uh, the first time he came to our house, he said, Chief Rabbi, whatever you do, don't talk to me about religion. When it comes to God, I'm too deaf. And then he said, What I don't understand is how you studied philosophy at Cambridge and Oxford. How is it that you believe? And I said, Sir Isaiah, if it helps, think of me as a lapsed heretic.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> quite understand, dear boy, quite understand. So, um, there is the kind of atheist um, with whom I've had dialogues. um, I had a dialogue two weeks ago on the BBC, quite a long one, with Richard Dawkins. And that's how I understand Richard Dawkins. He's tone deaf to some of the wretched. Not all, he has a sense of awe in the presence of nature and the vastness of the universe. But in other respects, he's tone deaf. And he said, "Absolutely right. I am tone deaf, you know, which was an interesting admission on his part. So they're the tone deaf atheists, and then the other kind of atheists, who really have soul, and who really see um, the failings of the embodiment of religion at any given moment. And I make it my principle." To have open dialogue with those atheists, and I have them all the time in, in Britain and, and in Israel. I'm thinking here of real prophetic figures who are complete atheists, very anti religious, like the Israeli novelists Amos Oz, David Grossman, Aleph Beit Yoshua, with all of whom I have a close friendship. I'm, I'm thinking of interesting intellectuals with whom I've had dialogues, like Stephen Pinker. Like George Steiner, and when you are in conversation with such people, you feel incredibly enlarged, because you know they are seeing things from a different perspective to you, and you come away with with a sense of 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 real having made space for the other, and and that's important. And that conversation is so fundamental to Judaism. Um, I. I don't know of any other civilization than Judaism, all of whose canonical texts are anthologies of arguments. You know, and if they ain't got a decent argument, it ain't Jewish, you know. And so, you know, and and the greatest figures in the Bible argue with God himself. Abraham does, Moses does, Jeremiah does, Job does, Jonah does. I mean, that's part of the dialectic of faith. And no one ever eliminates the argument. Even if the argument has been resolved in favor of Hillel over Shammai, we still repeat the teaching of Shammai. So I think there's an argument with atheists that enlarges us. I think it was those profoundly humanist atheists uh, that Rav Cook was talking about.
2: Mm, yeah, no, I mean, I entirely agree. We need uh, atheists. Like, we people of faith need atheists. Like you know, I'm analogous to the Shabbos goy so that the Jewish community needs. Yeah, no, we, we but in a much more profound level, we need them as conversation partners. And the, they don't always realize that the reverse is also true. But sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. And then one has a really deep conversation. Yeah.
0: Both of you have talked a lot about not just the individual experience of religion, but communities and how... Increasingly, both of you are touching on the vital question of the creation of community. And you mentioned um, earlier today, you're talking about Robert Putnam's book, American Grace, but his earlier book, Bowling Alone, which was based on his article of that name, talked about this erosion of civic engagement in America, what he calls declining social capital. I'm wondering, I really was really delighted that we have so many students in the audience tonight, I'm wondering if you could talk about Um, especially among young people about communal ties in an age which often seems so fragmented, so atomized, Um, and especially when we think of multiculturalism, creating worlds within worlds within worlds, where you have communities that maybe don't integrate into the larger body politic, how do we actually begin to change that and create a larger culture where young people can feel both a loyalty to their their own thing and also a commitment to the countries they inhabit. In other words, what kind of common ground can we create to make a community today?
2: Well, I think we need these very vibrant local communities, but we also need this kind of connection. And I think that when you see, I mean, multiculturalism is very badly misunderstood, very badly misunderstood outside of Canada, but also I think maybe a little bit in Canada. Because people in Europe very often react to it as though it were an invitation to retreat into your ghetto. Right? But Canadian multiculturalism has always been an attempt to integrate. And integrate on the understanding that the country belongs to everybody. I mean, not just the people that were here <laughs> in the more distant past, but to everybody. So it's involved always in creating this sense of, of link, of common purpose, of common goal that links people across communities. And I think that's where uh, the the political dimension becomes really absolutely crucial. If we let that political dimension, the dimension that we are citizens together, we wanna to create a country that really is proud to be in, but also we wanna create a world that's gonna be livable in by our children and grandchildren. Without that political dimension, this whole system does collapse into a number of very, if you like, egoistic, if that's the right word, communities that are that are inwardly turned. And I think that is where the prophetic voice of various religious communities can play a very, very big role. I mean, don't forget this world, don't forget this country, reach out. And I know that Jonathan has done tremendous things in that regard in the English context, but I think we need that very much in the Canadian context.
1: It's very striking that in that 2,000 book bowling alone, Robert Putnam was saying we've lost social capital. More people going bowling than ever, fewer than ever joining bowling teams, and that was a book about where is our social capital. Then ten years later, out comes American Grace saying social capital is in fact alive and well, and it exists in our religious communities. And if you are a member of a religious community, you are more likely to help a neighbor in distress look after a pet dog if they're going on holiday, help somebody find a job, invite in somebody who's lonely, or allow somebody else to cut in front of you in a traffic jam. (laughs) Um, And uh, Robert Putnam um, delayed the publication of American Grace by two years because those findings were so counterintuitive uh, that he kind of distrusted his results and went back and did more research and came back with Exactly the same conclusion. Religion is the great creator of communities today. Um, And uh, it's very interesting that religion creates communities, sometimes of an intensity you won't find anywhere else. A leading politician in Britain once asked me what is community and uh, how I understand the word, because I've written several books on it, Politics, Vote, The Home, We Build Together, and so on. And I said, well, look... I can best explain community by saying that I give a lot of talks about a lot of different subjects to Italy in a lot of different countries, and when the, thing, when the talk is over and we're having coffee and everyone comes up to me, they ask me questions, and wherever I am and whatever I've spoken about, it's always the same question. Do you know who I am? You know, my aunt used to uh, go to school with your mother's second cousin, or my niece used to babysit for, you know. I mean, forget six degrees of separation in the Jewish community. Two Jews meet as strangers and part as mishpacha, as family. So uh, they call that Jewish geography. So, and it's an absolutely extraordinary thing, and it functions right across the world. So I said, community is where they know who you are and where they miss you when you're not there. And it was very interesting that this politician, very bright man, did not understand that. In other words, we have a kind of sense of uh, corporate belonging and mutual responsibility in religious communities that you don't readily find out there. And it's very interesting now that we've opted for virtual communities through uh, Mm -hmm. Facebook and and social networking software and uh, Sherry Turkle of MIT called her book on the impact of this, you know, the texting phenomenon on on young people. She called it alone together. Mm. So virtual community ain't real community. And I think I must commend Moses on his foresight 3,300 years ago when he said, on the seventh day, thou shalt not text. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we needed the liberation from slavery in Egypt. We now need the liberation of slavery for smartphones. So, um, that is number one, the power of community. Of course, we have to be open to the fact that the very act of joining lots of people together to make a collective us, which unites, at the same time divides, because for every us, there's a them, the people not like us. And that is why um, it's an imperative, I think, in all diverse societies today, that we have also to reach out the hand of friendship
0: across communities. Professor Taylor, I wanted to conclude our discussion by basically talking about how can certain people um, transcend the kind of thinking box they're in? How can they come to it? You know, you talked about tone deafness. Can we take a person who doesn't think in these terms and talk to them in a the way where they can begin to think in these terms?
2: Well, I don't think yeah you know, exactly talk them into it because right. as you say, I mean, uh, Weber uses this expression too: "religios unmusikalisch," I'm un religiously unmusical. The same, it's like the tone. I mean, it's very interesting, and Weber used it in a kind of semi-ironic way because he was kind of both self-critical and also espousing that. Obviously, Dawkins was just espousing that. Mm-hmm. So that that gives you a hint that if you. Somebody's really told deaf and you want to explain why Beethoven is great, you just can't do it, right, right? So something has to touch them, some sense of the limits of this, some sense of what can go beyond this, and that's very hard to program. I, mean, I don't know, I think that people of faith, really remarkable people of faith, manage to touch people by what they are much more than by any arguments that they can actually deploy. But it seems clear to me that, that lives lived simply within this very circumscribed uh, box are somehow missing something. They're missing even an aspiration that, that goes beyond that, that box. And once people get a hint of this, then of course you can redescribe the situation. I mean, you were saying about, you're trying to explain community to this person, this British politician and he didn't get what you were saying. I mean, that's a very arresting situation when you think it's very clear to me and uh, let me articulate it, and you don't get it. But if they do begin to get it, or if, just if, the fact that you're saying that, and they're, they have a certain sense that there's something deep in your life, and you're saying that, and they don't get it, well, I'm worried I don't get it. Let me try to, uh, let me try to see what it could be that can open something, which can open a conversation.
1: There was one incident that actually provoked me to write the book The Great Partnership, uh, which I think perhaps uh, is one way of talking about it. In uh, 2009, the British Humanists Association um, paid to uh, cover London buses with a big slogan, which said, (laughs) God probably doesn't exist. So, stop worrying and enjoy life. And I said, that's a really interesting sentence, (laughs) and it contains a really interesting word, and the interesting word is probably. (laughs) And I said, now now go figure. Um, Read uh, Lord Rees, the the, uh, president of the Royal Society, Britain's most distinguished scientist, uh, read his book, Just Six Numbers, and you will see the probability of the universe existing is almost zero because uh, had any of the six fundamental mathematical forces that define the nature of the physical universe been different to a a trillionth of a degree, the universe wouldn't have come into being. So the universe is improbable. Uh, The emergence of life from inanimate matter uh, is so uh, extraordinary that uh, a convinced atheist like Francis Crick uh, was convinced that in order to explain the emergence of life on Earth, you had to... Suppose that it came from Mars, thus <laughs> creating another question, how did life <laughs> emerge in Mars? But, and then, of course, that one of these three million life forms that we currently know that exist should ex- actually be capable of asking the question, why, is the ultimate impossibility. Yet, of course, only when human beings first ask the question, why, did the universe become conscious of itself. So everything that exists is wildly improbable on fairly secular scientific and mathematical grounds. Then ask, who is the most influential person who ever lived? Well, given that there are 2.2 billion Christians, 1.3 billion Muslims, and a few Jews, most of whom are here tonight, uh, (laughs) count Abraham as their spiritual uh, inspiration, I think you've got to say, Abraham, how probable was it that Abraham, a man who commanded no armies, ruled no empire, performed no miracles, and delivered no prophecies, became the most influential person there was. And then think how come this tiny little handful of people, 0.2% of the population of the world, who Moses in Deuteronomy 7 verse 7 says is, we are the smallest of all peoples, should nonetheless have been attacked by some of the greatest empires The world has ever known, from Egypt to the pharaohs, all the way through to the Third Reich and the Soviet Union. Every one of those civilizations, each of which bestrode the narrow world like a colossus and seemed invulnerable in its day, has now been consigned to history, and this tiny little people is still alive and well, and mainly in the University of Toronto this evening, and still singing The Jewish People Lives. So I conclude that nothing interesting is probable. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and then I define faith as the defeat of probability by the power of possibility and when it, we see that it's the faith of Moses or an Amos or an Isaiah in the possibility in this world in which so many people say homo hominis, lupus est, man is wolf to man, that you could dream of constructing a society built on justice and compassion and the sanctity of life and the inviolable and inalienable dignity of every human individual. When you could conceive that somebody could think of this world as created by God in love and forgiveness and he then asks us to love and forgive. These are possibilities, signals of transcendence, that when we see their power to transform the world are our evidence of the power of faith. And even if we do not have it, when we catch a glimpse of its transformative effect, we are drawn to it. And that's what drew me to it, and I think it will continue. To draw human beings, as long as there are humans
0: on God's earth. Professor Taylor, Chief Rabbi Sachs, you've you've opened up some possibilities for us this (laughs) evening, and we want to thank you very much for speaking to us.